Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Jack podcast. You know what I'm about to say and you're probably going to skip forward 30 seconds but I'm pleading with you not to. It's been a difficult few months in terms of people chipping in and keeping this show on the road but it's been a huge month in terms of the new people who are listening. So if you're one of the new listeners and you like what we do and you want to stick around, help us stick around. Join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis and you get access to our entire back catalogue of over 1,300 podcasts covering just about everything that you've ever wanted to know about. Entirely plea-free and ad-free and sponsor-free. And by joining us, you'll be helping us to keep it free for everyone. Independent media matters now more than ever. Yes, we're unapologetically of the left. No, that doesn't float everybody's boats. But you know what? The right has enough outlets and platforms out there to get their message across. So let us do our thing. Help us keep going. Help keep these mics on. And the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. One more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack shutting up now enjoy the podcast welcome to reboot republic the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality and today we're going further very very far away all the way across uh the irish sea to bring back uh, a guest who's been on um echo chamber recently enough but hasn't been back on reboot John Harris, um, who is the award-winning Guardian political columnist and is now hosting his own podcast, um, which I'm sure only has one or two more listeners than ours. Um, it's called the uh, Week in Poli- Weekly Politics Weekly UK. I get the name right, John. It's wonderful to have you back. Nice to be here, Rory. Just to make clear, it's not my podcast; it's the Guardian's podcast. I haven't got the yeah, I haven't got the wherewithal to even know where to start. I can, barely, uh, I can barely uh, find batteries. I, I got to push in and say, actually, John, you're, you're, the problem you've heard, we found out over the last few years is knowing that you are a very good broadcaster. <laughs> and, you were uh, among the first. Yes, that's true. So yeah. we launched your career. I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, yeah. They were the the uh, the editors, top brass, were listening to Reboot and they said, hmm, John, you've got a very suave, smooth voice. I, I like it. Th- I, 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 th- I like to think something there. Uh, what is it? Anywhere but Westminster played a large part as well, John. There's that as well. It was between the two things, very definitely. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're definitely in this. It's being out on the road for 10 years and then the uh, the last shove from you guys and I was yeah. there. Um, and this, John, I was going to ask you first, a big kind of, you know, settle back because so much politics and politics analysis is, you know, immediate, reactive, uh, you know, what's the, the crisis right now that's being dealt with? But if you were to step back and we look at all that's happened in recent years from Brexit, the various Tory government shambles, Boris, the war in Ukraine, you know, the pandemic. I can't remember if I said the pandemic. It's just a repeating thing, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. The sense, you know, when you think coming out of the pandemic was something new going to happen climate change um where is the uk at in terms of politics and people's ideas and because you spent so much time going around talking to people what's the sense of where people are at has anything changed or yeah yeah things have changed yeah so it's yeah very easy changed? i think it's very easy to think and i it, this crosses my mind from time to time and it can make you very miserable that the uk is just going around and around in circles right and and the reason it's going round and round in circles is because it's trapped by Brexit effect. Yeah. You know, nothing can get any better and no one can feel any hope and nothing can change until the country in some way or another, God knows how it would do this, sort of collectively acknowledges this huge mistake, right? So that's one view of what's happening. 
But it's clear when you go out talking to people, which I've done a lot of recently because we've had a run of three parliamentary by-elections, two of which the Tories lost and one they will not retain. So I was out again talking to people on the street. And there is a settled consensus now among most people that we're at the end of something now. And the, and the most obvious thing we're at the end of is this period of Tory domination. You know, if you talk to people, they, they say this government's finished, isn't it? You know, this isn't going anywhere. They're in decline. Something's going to change. Now, you know, I personally, or <laughs> a reserve judgment here, because the Conservative Party is the most successful election winning machine in Western history and all of that. And, it, you know, it's not inconceivable that they will win another term, but it's doubtful, right? And people feel that. So that's one way, very obvious and fundamental way that things have changed. You know, most people expect a change of government. And if you look at the opinion polls, by far the single biggest body of people want a change of government, right? And that's a big thing. You know, the, the Tories are not having it all their own way anymore. Uh, so that's one thing. I think also what's happened since the pandemic started to recede is, I mean, this is a cliche now in, in most of the British newspapers and in sort of everyday conversation that, that we live in the country where nothing works, you know. Yeah. There is a sense now of uh, of sort of infrastructure breakdown and the fact that public services are woefully underfunded and the idea that there, are, there is a set of things that are fundamentally wrong with, with how things are run here. And I think that's a matter of consensus as well. And you didn't necessarily find that, I would say, 10 or 15 years ago. So taken taken together, those things suggest that you know we're in the maybe this is the first stirrings of a change moment. Now, what that change will be and whether it'll amount to a hill of beans is a completely different set of questions, right? Well, well, hang on, John. You just before we go there, this you you reference people's um, you know the idea now that they have to reckon with the idea that Brexit was a failure. You know, I've heard Brexit described as the the first time a country voted to impose sanctions upon itself. Um, yes, uh, and it's it's definitely some you know something that stuck with me. We I, I can't credit who it was because I can't remember. So you can you can give it to me now. Uh, but nonetheless, just in terms of the 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 infrastructure breakdown, we see the you know I didn't I know more about sewage and and on British beaches than I I, I I I care to know now. I know all of these things that are happening, and still the underlying issue is now where I saw it, only this morning before we started recording. Uh, people living in tents who are getting up and going to work. Yeah, I saw that story. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you've been talking to, I remember you spoke to a soldier who still kind of, uh, you know, was, was trying to keep the faith, yet he was at a food bank while you were queuing and talking to him. He was, uh, he, you know, a former soldier, I should say. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the level of, that's the level of despair that you, you would, you would say, you wouldn't associate with um, a prosperous Western country, John. No, no, that story that, that has come up today. The worst part of that story is it's it's that cliche of shocking and yet not surprising. Mm. When you read about people who uh, families, I think was was that story is about families who live in tents. I mean, I've, well, seen, yeah. I've seen versions of that story before. There was a story about a big logistics depot in Scotland for a major on online retailer. I'm not sure I'll I won't mention them for legal reasons, but uh, this is in the thick of winter. Some of their workers were. were staying in tents while working shifts in a big logistics warehouse so in that sense that's that's not that new there are you get periodic reports on the news here i'm sure i mean i've seen this in ireland so about people living in cars it's another one yeah so um yes that's all there i and and i think people are more sensitized to that than they were right so um 
there was a time when I was worrying that people here were indifferent to that level of deprivation, you know, and that food banks were somehow seen as the natural order of things and all that. I don't think we're there now. I think most people understand that it's wrong that they're there and it says something about the state of society. On the Brexit question, the problem with Brexit is if you look at opinion polling and you have conversations with people, a lot of people, including many of those who voted for Brexit themselves, acknowledged that it was a it was probably a mistake, it was a bad thing to do, and that they can't see any of the things that they were promised and all the rest of it. But the idea of reopening it, of taking the lid off the box and somehow going back in straight away, I would say most people, me included to some extent, that just brings on this awful feeling of, of instant exhaustion. Like, not that again, right? And even on the sort of the people who, who would like us sooner or later to rejoin, I don't think there's enough understanding that that's a far-off prospect. You know, the precondition for that is you have to have cross-party agreement between the two main Westminster parties that we that will go back in. Now, I I think in the fullness of time, that'll probably happen, right? Because obviously the economic case for doing so is 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 unanswerable. It's huge. But I might be dead at that point. But, right? but, but going then, let's let's quickly then, you said that you're a sceptic as, as opposed to the idea that the Tory government are definitely going to lose. Yeah. Um, which it's, is, it's likely. It's uh, you know yeah, very yeah, very likely. I share the, I share the same view, but it's interesting that you know we're we're coming out of the. I think was was it last week was small boats week. Yeah, this is crazy stuff. Like you know, this to me just like these five pledges that the Tories are running on. Surely that's not a platform to get re-elected on small boats week, and um, you know why in the sense that the the their, their focus on small boats has proved to be a complete failure. The boats are still coming, and the the it's all mired in chaos and all that. No, that's true. Um, but, but you know, pledges and policies and all that are sort of overrated, to my mind, as as really important factors in elections, you know. No one, journalists, a lot of political journalists have this funny idea that people sort of run off to the pub at some point with that day's newspapers and the party manifestos, and they go, I must, uh, must have another look at what that nice Mr. Starmer is offering <laughs> and forensically compare it to what I'm hearing from Mr. Sunak. And on that basis, I will make a carefully balanced decision. People don't think like that. Yeah. I don't. When I go in the opinion, when I go in the polling booth, are you kidding? And they're increasingly saying now that, like, you know, they have been saying for a number of years, but that elections, people are deciding literally the last minute. You know, yeah, before they that. Go. And huge numbers of people switch parties, but also, but elections, within are, won, but elections are won or lost on the basis of stories. Right, this is what the left of politics doesn't often understand. A lot of the left of politics think you can say thinks you can say we'll spend X extra billion on this, and we'll have ten thousand more of these, and six thousand more of these, yeah, and, uh, and you know, and your whatever will go up by this much percent, and that makes a case for people to vote for you, right? Stories of uh, elections are won or lost by stories, and the problem with with politics, certainly in the UK, it applies to America as well, is that the political right very often is better at stories than the political left. Yeah. Right, taking back control is a story. Take back control. So here's something you used to have. You haven't got it now, and you're going to get it back. You know, make America great again is the story. Again is the operative word, right? Um, and although I think it's a, it's very, very likely that the Tories will lose the next election, um, and I wonder what their story is going to be, because what have we got to show for 13 years? That's the weird thing. You know, yeah. we had all those years of Mrs. Thatcher, and if you were fortunate enough to be able to have bought your council house, you had something to show for it. You know, I, that policy was a disaster in all sorts of ways, right? But materially, a lot of people's lives had improved through that period, right? 
God knows what the story is at these days. You have yes. your independent economy again. There you go. You see, oh, you your, bl- your, blue passports, Rory. You have, blue, you have blue, blue passports and sovereignty. Take that to Lidl and see how it goes. That's what. Yeah. That's <laughs> one thing, right? So I don't know what their story is, but and, and you may have said pick this up, right? My the thing I keep returning to, not every week, but a lot of the time, is well, what's the Labour Party stuff? Yeah. Really? Well, well, you 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 framed the, your last podcast. You called it hope or despair. Yeah. So I, I think I story. Did, sorry, no, but I think I, I think I emailed you and I said hope for the hopeless was was, was my reply. Yeah, totally, totally. Now I, I as it turned out, I was not the world's greatest Tony Blair fan at all. But in '97, when he achieved his first and most famous victory, Tony Blair had a story. Things can only get better. And if you looked at the way that they campaigned, it was all about the fact that schools and hospitals were falling down. And given the chance, they would make them better and that Britain deserved better and it needed a new generation of politicians. And there was this overwhelming story about change, fresh pair of hands, and, you know, oh, I don't know how you how you'd sort of frame this, really, but the kind of mora- the, the morals of the way that you run society and who we are and what our responsibilities to each other are and all of that is easy to forget. So that was a that was a pretty good story, right? Now, Ida Starmer, the Labour Party leader, apparently has come to the conclusion that people have been made so many false promises. This goes back to Brexit chiefly over the last sort of seven or eight years. Outlandish things, right? Build back better. You know, 350 million a year on the NHS, the great sunlit up plans of Brexit, all the crap that Boris Johnson talked after the pandemic, levelling up and all of this stuff, right? They're now so cynical and jaded about politics that there's no point even trying to tell them a story because they're not going to listen, right? This is Starmer's conclusion. So all he can really say is, I'm more competent than this lot. You know, things will, things will be better, trust me, but it's going to take a long time, etc., etc. And I, I can understand the logic of that. The problem with it is when you go out on the streets talking to people and you mention Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, they just say, I don't know what that's about. Even though, you know, when push comes to shove, they'll probably vote for it a lot. They sort of are very attached and indifferent to it almost. And I think that's because of the lack of a message. And the other thing is, it's a nice sunny day here today and I've just gone back from a festival, so I don't want to over-egg this point because I'm not feeling that hopeless. I feel quite good today. But... um. Your point, Tony, is right. You know that there is a there is a hope deficit in Britain, and none of the mainstream political parties are filling. And it's interesting in terms of that story question because when you look at Trump and you look at you know Boris Johnson, and as you said, that narrative of the right, and and increasingly, you know, the far right as well is you know their story is you know we close up, we close the borders, you know, immigrants are the problem. Yes. That, you know, we're defending a certain, you know, a certain group in society and, you know, we need to kick out, you know, drain the swamp, as Trump said, that, you know, the bureaucrats are all against you and, you know, you need someone who's going to stand up for the little person. Yeah. And someone who knows. And and it was a story that matches people's reality to an yeah, extent yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. and we were discussing this before you came on air, the question of public services is a, is at the heart of it, that the left should be should have a vision for a state that provides quality, um, inclusive, democratic public services. Yeah, and we and we are always arguing for this, but the problem is we point to people point to well, look at existing public services, which are literally, you know, he said half the time just let people down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually and, think there's a more sellable way of making the same point, which is all about risk and insecurity and fear, right? 
Yeah. That, to my mind, should be the left case, right? So what's the, what's the fundamental change that's happened here and all over Europe to some extent and the US, right? Since the late 70s, early 80s, the big change that we saw with the, with the arrival of the age of so-called neoliberalism, right? Well, it's, it's really about the transfer of risk, right? So my parents' generation had a lot of risk and fear lifted from their shoulders by the arrival of the welfare state and a very well-funded public sector, decent public sector pensions, you know, uh, housing in abundance by modern standards. It's another part of all this, right? They didn't live in fear. Right? I don't recall when I was at primary school in the 70s um, and at secondary school in the 80s, the sense that a lot of my classmates were living with insecurity and fear. You know, it didn't yeah. It didn't feel like that. And, and the economic statistics bear all that out, right? So ever since then what's happened, since Mrs. Thatcher arrived, is risk has been piled onto people, right? You live in sort of sink or swim societies. That's reflected in the housing situation, people's precarious conditions of work, the fact that we are told uh, an inordinate number of people are about one month's pay away from destitution, all of that stuff, minimal levels of savings, right? Now, to my mind, the left case should be all about we, we take the risk back, right? Somebody's looking out for you. That's the way to answer the populists. Nigel Farage isn't looking out for you. Boris Johnson yeah. certainly wasn't, right? But all of those things about democratic and inclusive public services and beginning to look at things like uh, maybe universal public service entitlement. So you say to people, the state is here to guarantee you this, 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 and this. And that probably includes safe and secure and dependable housing and education for your children, dependable and advanced and modern health uh, healthcare free at the point of use and maybe two or three other things. And speak that language. Because that's like a that's like the left answer to take but, back control. But but, my mind. but, and we, but and Keir Star but Keir Starmer is refusing to No, to, we're not hearing about it. All Keir Starmer says is totally all he says is I'm here to make the economy grow again. Yeah. Well, that's not you know, it's a, he's, he's, he's an abstract a, notion. He's but he's talking notion. he was talking trickle down yesterday in an interview. It's like, it sounds a bit like trickle down. And uh, there are some there are some stats just come out. Um, I see that. The thing that came out yesterday, that executive pay has gone up 16%, I, yeah. and the Labour Party is refusing to comment. I mean, for, sorry, can I swear? <laughs> yes, go ahead. For fuck's sake. <laughs> it, it, it I'll, is, add that, I'll add that. Go ahead, for fuck's sake. 16% <laughs> CEO's pay rise. Yeah, well, everyone else is getting told to tighten their belt. But can I ask one thing about, okay. Well, but that is a question. I just want to come back to that before you go, Tony, because they're really important, because on the one hand, you have saying we need proper public services, they need to be funded, and these will protect you. And, you know, take that risk, as you say, away and ensure that that vulnerability um, that you are supported rather than living in fear and stress yeah. um, and practically supported. But that requires taxation, it requires yeah, taxation of wealth. And yeah. on the one hand, what has happened is the rise of neoliberalism hasn't just been about putting risk on the majority of population. It has been about squeezing them and allowing this massive extraction of wealth and all this you know, th this massive wealth that's been created has been extracted from people. And we see CEOs and, and, and the bizarre situation is, and my question is, why aren't people questioning that more? Or are they increasing? No, they are. People know. People know. Of course they know. Um, I think people have a, most people have a very clear sense that um, there is that horrible imbalance. And despite everything that they were told, I mean, chiefly in the midst of the pandemic, right? The pandemic was sort of presented to people, and I think people wanted to believe that the pandemic was somehow a leveling moment, right? That because we were all out on our doorsteps clapping nurses and delivery drivers and all of that, and there was this sense of everybody everybody being in it together and so on, that, that something somehow 
things that would come out of that would be centered on the rich somehow being pulled down a peg or two and, and most people being raised up. But obviously that hasn't happened. But I think people are more sensitized to that than they were. And therefore, I think the Labour Party could make more noise about that. It definitely could. It could be braver. But, but one thing I want to ask you then about back to people, say your bank, the Bank of England is imposing austerity on people with its... Uh... It's campaign to continually just tackle inflation as if that's the... Yeah, yeah, we're, um, we're back in the realm of awful fat right economics. So what's the solution to inflation is to throw another half a million people on the dole. And what, meanwhile, banks are, are coining it like they are here. Um, the one thing I will say, actually, it's funny enough for the Irish listeners, is the UK banks are the best in, in Europe at passing on deposit interest rates to uh, increases to the depositors, and Ireland is the worst. But one thing that, that, that I want to point out, John, and you might not have seen this, is again from the Global um, Alliance for Tax Justice. Um, we talk about wealth creators. The UK, Ireland gets a hard time as a tax haven, and rightly so. But the UK use, uh, outsources it to, to UK territories like the Caymans. And, yeah, 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 yeah. and you're actually the worst in the world for it. So yeah, yeah. so, so are, are, is there any kind of any kind of talk of, well, how do we, no point in, in trying to, to, to tax this wealth, as Rory puts it, if we can't even get it back on shore? Yeah, that's a very urgent conversation that needs to be had, no question. Um, and I think also, that sort of then blurs over into lots of these questions about being honest about tax and spending and all of that. You know, that's another way way in which, in the most awful way, British politics at the moment is sort of absurd. Um, so uh, local authorities, left, right and centre in England now, are starting to go bankrupt. I mean, we've had a sense of this already. There have been two or three that have effectively gone bankrupt. But the city of Bristol, near where I live, for example, is now, look- is now looking at an incredibly financially precarious position, right? And they're the people who... People always talk about local government as if it's some sort of dull and abstract thing. Well, they're the people who provide children and adult social care and collect your bins and libraries and parks and piles in the road and all that. So austerity in that sense is ongoing. And sooner or later, and I'd rather it be sooner, there has to be a conversation about spending money, but the Labour Party won't talk about. Which I understand again. It's oh, so see, stop this. Stop giving so, them it's this. Complicated. It's complicated because, because the Labour Party is terrified that people associate it with profligacy, right? And and ruining the national finances. Now, that all goes back to a period after the financial crash when George Oswald was allowed to say it was Labour who bankrupted the country and all yeah. that. I think we're still living with the consequences, but I think the Labour Party now could be more confident. Yeah, is it, A lot That's of this is a, just... is a confidence question, yeah. right? The Labour Party looks scared out of its wits, right? And I don't think it has need to be scared out of There's its wits. Two, two questions that follow from that. The question of confidence and the question of vision and the question of you know, courage to express a vision is one is the housing question. Yeah. Because in Ireland, we are going to see, and we saw to a certain extent in 2020, um, the generation locked out, the younger and increasingly middle-aged people who we've seen, you know, 68% of um, 25 to 29-year-olds, 68% still living at home um, with their parents. The anger of them, the sense of, you know, as we say, the first generation Ireland in modern history to be worse off than their parents um, is going to be expressed in the election. And yeah. the question will be who will who will express that? Yeah. Would Labour, and, and they don't seem to be in my mind, not you know, grab on to that. Okay, um, so, so, so there's a big picture answer to that and then a specific answer to it. So you have to, I, I have to be careful here about talking about this question of confidence, right? Because one of the great cliches at the paper that I work for, The Guardian, is the, the article that says, come on, Labour, be bold, right? 
everyone writes it once in a while. Now, the question is, do they even want to be bold, right? You know, a lot of the time, one wonders about politicians like Keir Starmer. Is it the fact they're reluctantly reining everything in and saying, you're not having this and you're not having that, we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that? Or is that actually reflective of a lot of their politics, right? Mm. No, I think it probably is, right? And you can stand there until you're blue in the face saying, come on, be bold, be yeah. more confident. But they you just know. don't believe it. As we found out with Tony Blair, we saw what happened when Tony Blair was bold and confident. We got the Iraq yeah. fucking war, right? And they started privatizing everything, right? So you have to be careful with that stuff. So that's, that's one thing to say about that. There is there is an associated question about what they concentrate on, nonetheless. And we are still living with this sort of huge political hang-up whereby home ownership is the totality, really, of what's presented as housing policy. It's just all about buying a house, which I get. I understand that, right? And people are horrified if, when their kids reach adulthood, Home ownership, I'm sure this is the case in Ireland as well, home ownership becomes impossible, right? Yeah. The idea that they can't get on the property ladder and all that. I understand why, and that people want to feel they have an asset and all that. But at the same time, 20% of UK households, I don't know what the figure is in Ireland, um, are living in private rented accommodation. What's the figure in Ireland? It's same, 20%. Okay, which is unprecedented by yeah. modern standards, right? Yeah. And as you say, doubled, like huge... doubled in the last decade. Yeah, we, we closed we closed the gap. Um, to we we were we weren't doing too badly about fifteen years ago, but we've managed to 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 make things really really bad really quickly. Private rents are soaring. I mean, it's I think I'm in the in Manchester. Uh, rents have gone up by as much as twenty percent. I was hearing yesterday. Yeah, in the last year. Other, I mean, I think on average it's about five percent in the last year, but that that masks huge sort of variation place by place. And then you've got that massive generational question, which is just, I mean, that's defining. you. The first time I met you, Rory, we talked about this, didn't we? Yeah. You said that you had a, a room full of students and you said, who expects to buy a house? Yeah. And no yeah. one puts their hand up, right? And it's vastness. And it's, even the way that we think about young people in relation to this is wrong, right? So people go, it's under 30s or something. It's about, is everyone under 45 or something here? It goes and way up the age. We right? saw in, in, in the census that just came out, an 83% increase in over 65s stuck in the private rental sector. Wow. Wow. There you go. Like a doubling in in just the space of six years, five, six years since the last census, the number. Uh, and they are immediately living okay. in housing insecurity. And So these are, huge, these are huge fundamental questions that I hope will surface at the next general election. In fairness to the Labour Party to come, some slack. Lisa Nandy, the Labour politician, is in charge of that portfolio, does talk about private rent and says that she wants uh, she wants social housing to come back decisively as a part of housing policy, you know, to really foreground it all again. And the Labour Party has a proposed private renters charter and it does talk about all the insecurity of private renting and all of that and what a huge problem that is. The question is whether that makes it through then into the absolute yeah. foreground of its campaigning, or whether you hear more and more stuff just about home ownership and oh, I don't know, you know, the, the sort of echoes of the right to buy, and the, and the rent the rental point gets missed out because the the crucial point is it's not you know, I mean it'll cost quite a lot of money. Yeah, but that's. Well, I've never thought the answer to this is that complicated. The answer to this, the thing is, you build more social housing, right? <laughs> and it's not just housing; it has to be one and two bedroom. Uh, accommodation in many cases you have to you know and you have to build it mixed tenure so you don't put people on the periphery of cities all uniformly living in monolithic housing with all of you know we know all the mistakes that have been made right so the answer is sort of staring us in the face 
But I, I think politicians are selfing up on this idea of aspiration. The idea if you start going on about council housing, so I will scare the horses. I don't buy that. Yeah, but but John, let's let's okay. Um, let, let, let's also talk about the other side of the the other side of the fence where um, Lee Anderson is saying stuff like "fuck off back to France" to people who are on a a, a barge filled filled with, uh, with with viruses and unsafe unsanitary conditions, and no one in that party is um, even they're backing him up effectively. Uh, and and by the way, I don't know if listeners are aware. We we recently at the weekend we covered we uncovered that Queen's University in Belfast have a com- have a contract with the same company CPM that that brought the Bibby Stockholm into uh, into the UK. So you know, um, and we also know from our own experience that there's talks of uh, Roger O'Gorman, our our minister, uh, who was supposed to be ending direct provision of bringing these barges over and having effectively floating direct provision. But John, the cruelty in that. Surely, maybe this to give Keir Starmer a bit. Of, maybe just by standing beside them, he he looks like you have to vote for this guy because you can't vote for these monst- monsters. Yeah, but also to state the blind and the obvious, that's the politics of desperation. I mean, that's what happens when you've got nothing to show for your record after thirteen years in office, and the housing question among several remains completely unanswered. What else have you got? And the answer is you send out this person, it seems will say, you know, the first thing that comes into his head in the most obnoxious way imaginable. And you think that somehow that's the key to shoring up your electoral base. I don't buy it, you know. I think I'm confident that Lee Anderson will lose his seat in the next election. And I think he, he represents a former coalfield seat in the East Midlands, where all of the problems that we've talked about in the last 10 or 15 minutes are absolutely acute. And I think people, most people there understand as much as they, some of them may talk about so-called small boats and all of that. Most of them understand. And yet, again, this is reflected in opinion polling that the fundamentals uh, are still all about security, housing, people's standard of living and all that. I mean, again, to to be optimistic, there is a substantial part of um, of British politics, particularly on the right and particularly in the media. Now we've got this awful thing, GB News. Do you get that in Ireland? Can you watch that? I don't know if um, we don't really watch it. You can see it online. But one of the things that was quite interesting, if you were following the fallout in RTE um, and the the Ryan Tuberty scandal, as we call it, allegedly the largest star RTE had, um, the story came out this morning that uh, GB News offered him a, a a parachute of a like you know a job now that he's 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 officially out at RTE, and I have to be honest with you, John, Ryan Turbody is not right wing enough for GB News. He's simply right. not. He is Finna Fall dynasty, like his his family are all old Finna Fall, but but he's Finna Fall in so far as the way that you know Finna Fall were always smart enough to to make sure you had enough money left in your pocket on a Friday evening to have a few points with the lads. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Sensible by GB News standards, but um. Anyway, they would like Britain to be like America. That's what they want, right? Is they want yeah. Donald Trump-style culture war stuff. So you don't talk about housing and people's conditions of work, right, and inequality and the dire state of the public realm or any of those things. All you talk about is uh, is unisex toilets and um, and barges moored off the coast of Dorset and all those other things. And uh, it won't wash, right? British voters, most of them, are stubbornly traditional in the sense that when they go out to vote, what will be uppermost in their mind, as well as the as well as who's told the best story and who's who's got something to tell them about the future and all that, what they want that story to be focused on are the sort of fundamentals of people's lives. Which is surprising. It's hardly surprising. Yeah. No. No. It is a a question, and, and it was following on from the confidence. What's the fallout from the <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn momentum? The left, 
all of that. You're just looking, John, that this is an audio only because your face is telling me. <laughs> but seriously, though, you know, because if Keir Starmer is, you know, the Labour Party, like, of course, there's a massive left in terms of people who think more radically, want a more radical approach, um, regardless of whether who they identify with. But they're there. They want it. And will they get active? Will they get active with the Labour Party? Where is that? Is there... New I mean, where, where, where is all that kind of activity and noise that centered on Jeremy Corbyn? Where's that gone? Is that, yeah, is that what you're at? Yeah, um, and and is there a potential? Yeah, I mean, it's right for or it's, quite, it's a good question. It's quite, I, I've had several conversations about this with various people in recent months or years. I mean, people presumably are writing doctoral theses about this now. It's like, <laughs> what happened to that? Right? Yeah. Like at one point, the Labour Party was the biggest had the biggest membership of any political party in Western Europe, and there were all these new media outlets, and I mean, there still are. And the, the idea was that this thing was sort of ascendant, right? It was insurgent. Yeah. It would suddenly be everywhere. And then they got the Labour Party got beat in 2019. And a, and a lot of it, not all of it, particularly the sort of, um, what's the word? The purely political manifestation of it. In other words, it as a force within the Labour Party. I don't, I don't mean out on, in the culture and online and all that. It just seemed to sort of shrivel away. Like, where where was it? Some people who were involved in it just walked away from the Labour Party and said they don't want anything to do with it mm. anymore. Which is odd, considering that <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn had doggedly sat there for a hundred years, yeah. <laughs> quietly waiting for his chance, right? Whether where, and 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 constantly being opposed to what the Labour leadership was doing, to suddenly walk away, you know, because they got beaten twice seems a, a quite an odd thing to do. Um, I think it's some of it, not all of it. I think reflects that modern sense that the online world brings things into being very, very quickly that look spectacular and massively influential, but they can prove to be quite sort of short-lived and brittle somehow. That's something to do with the online way of doing politics. But, but, it's, but opinion polls still still put them ahead of uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer in, in popularity. Well, they didn't in 2019 when the Labour Party got the, its worst results since 1935. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, let you, you, I let you have over, that one. You cannot overestimate the extent to which the Labour Party got thumped in 2019, right? We can have a conversation about the reasons why that happened, right? Mm. But when former Coalfield after former Steel Town, yeah, when the re when the Red Wall fell, it, it, it was a bit conservative. Something's yeah. gone profoundly wrong, right? I mean, there's no there's no question that ha that has to be acknowledged, right? Although there's something that sort of balances that or offsets it slightly, which is I would see the advent of Corbynism, however long it lasted, right, as being one of those things like Scottish independence and Brexit, for that matter, right? These things that took root outside the political mainstream and for a while threatened it and really scared people within the political mainstream were indicative of the fact that, uh, of what a dire state society is in and that mainstream politics hasn't come up with the answers or anything approaching the answers, right? So in that sense, it was another signpost too. This doesn't work, right? And that was certainly the case in 2017 when the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn did much better than people had, expe people had expected, right? So yes, something had happened. Now, the interesting question about the left's influence on, on Starmer, I would answer that in two ways. Firstly, even if he wins, he might win narrowly, right? And if he's got a small parliamentary majority, there are enough left-wing, broadly sort of Corbyn-aligned Labour MPs who will then start to say, well, come on, you've got to do better than this. You have to... Mm be more like we are that's one thing right but the other thing is what does the labor victory let loose you know it doesn't it's not all on Keir Starmer's terms 
the sheer fact of the Tories losing power, if it happens, and getting a new government will set loose all sorts of expectations and all sorts of desires and demands for change, right? Which he then will probably have to answer. Apart from anything else, all of those nurses and doctors and people who run local authorities and teachers, you know, and parents of kids with special needs and a, a huge sort of coalition of people will say, well, are things going to change now or what? And he will sooner or later have to answer that question. And that's out of his control, you know, how the, the volume with which people answer, and ask those questions. So I think that's going to be really interesting. I think that'll be more interesting than Starmer himself and what he does mm. is what and, what him winning lets loose. And and what follows from that, because I would think that what Corbynism also did and that momentum, uh, that movement, it reflected what you said was a, crit a critique of the system and people who are being excluded. And it gave them this sense of, OK, for a period of time, we have something to look for. Here's someone saying, you know, there's there is an alternative way of doing this. Here is a vision, you know, and. I wonder how much of that has unleashed what you talk about, which is, and has been growing, is this kind of community grassroots sense of an alternative economy around cooperatives, yeah, yeah. around people working together, not not in the narrow Tory, you know, it's all back to the, you know, get the state off me, we want to have our tidy towns and our little perfect villages, but actually people working together in solidarity, trying to create initiatives, be they food banks, be they, you know, that, that there's something unleashed that's happening. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I personally am much more interested in all of that than most things that go on in the Labour Party, you know. And uh, what do you see? What is happening <laughs> now? I mean, Labour Party and its affairs, I mean, important though they are because our electoral... No, 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 I mean, are, yes. You know, do you know what I mean? But they, it, 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 has a, it has a tendency to send me to sleep sometimes. <laughs> Whereas, right, of course it does, you know, resolution 41B, clause C and all that, I mean, for God's sake. So as you've noticed, a lot of the reporting that I have done down the years uh, has been about exactly what you've just talked yeah. about, right? And I'm sure this is the case in Ireland as well. So if you want a sense of, of the politics of the future, I don't know how this will cohere and what form it will take and whether it will or won't arrive in national politics somehow, right? But in terms of different ways of thinking that show you how to restructure the state and the public sector and how to how to put people in the driving seat and to begin to answer a lot of these questions about inequality and deprivation, no question. There's no point hanging around mainstream political parties trying to find out. You have to go where people actually feel they can make a difference themselves. You know, I live in a town with this amazing pioneering town council. We have a publicly publicly funded food bank here. There are all sorts of green things happening here. All of that is outside the party system. And there are versions of it happening all over the place, including, more to the point, in a lot of places that voted for Brexit and are post-industrial and are traditionally seen as sort of hopeless. They're not, right? So I think, yeah, I think you're right. That's the place to look. Um, what its influence in the immediate future is going to be on mainstream politics, I don't know. But it's easier to do that stuff and to make a go of it now, this is the flip side of the brittle sort of internet politics I talked about a moment ago. At the same time, the internet is a, it's just, as we all know, it's just a brilliant organizing mm. tool. But there's people. also, there's there's a real, and I think particularly around things like housing, you know, support, community support, you know, trying to get, you know, traffic out of urban areas, trying to get local community centers, arts projects, you know, basic community care there's a lot of potential for linking in with the climate issue. And the question is, where the hell is the climate but, issue? But, but can I just, but I yeah, that's, not, that's not fair. So, all right. So, so that, to so answer that last question, right? Yeah. Again, they cut the Labour Party some slack. Now, it's been postponed 
but it's yeah. still absolutely front and centre of the Labour Party's plans for government that it is going to spend £28 billion a year on greening the economy via what amounts to a Green New Deal, right? And for as long as Ed Miliband is in the shadow cabinet, that remains a very, very solid part of the Labour Party's Blackmore. And that's a huge, that's a massive point. That's of the difference. story, John. With the Tory party, well, with the Tory That's party. the story. Yeah, it should be the story. Look, because like, like, Richard, Mur Richard Murphy, Professor Richard Murphy, you probably hear on, on whatever, does the BBC and all the rest and does this show every now and then, he calls it another song. Needing another song, yeah, you yeah, call it a story, yeah, yeah. and this, and he always goes back to the fact that those jobs that Roy's referring to within climate, building homes, making them retrofitting homes, building, you know, making re renewable energy, all of this, that's the song, that's the story. I think that has to be that, that definitely ought to be the story, because that then enables you to go into former coal towns and steel towns that are still feeling the absence of those things and say here is the future. To some extent, that's going on already. I mean, you know, they make wind turbines in Grimsby, for example which has been really, really let down by the demise of its fishing industry and all that. But things in a small and a sort of burgeoning way are happening there, right? So you see the evidence of that. But to my mind, what that shows you, I mean, a green economy necessarily is a decentralized economy, right? Mm -hmm. It's an economy of small units. I mean, that's the way that renewable energy works, right? And that has to be reflected in the way that you do it, right? And I suppose as well as... Uh, really, really worrying about inequality and deprivation and poverty and wanting those things change. The other sort of fundamental part of my politics is a is a belief or a, or a dislike of the big state and a belief in doing things that are in the smallest, most grassroots, decentralized way imaginable, right? And that, to my mind, has to be the future. And in that sense, what government ought to do is be enabling, you know? And if we're going to have a left-of-center government, what I would like a left-of-center government to be is the sort of government that says, "Here's the money now, go away and do it." The problem with the Labour Party is mean, the problem with the Labour Party is it's a centralising statist party. You know, and yeah, it just the wants to say the corporations. Yeah, but it's like the <laughs> Labour Party. But also, but it's not even that, right? So, a, I agree with you. A, it's the corporations, but B, the Labour Party's biggest problem is it just wants these big levers in Whitehall that it sits there and pulls. It mm -hmm. thinks it's still 1945. It's not 1945, right? The future necessarily is decentralized and democratic and all about grassroots initiative and giving people the way, the means to do things the way that suit them, right? And there's the beginnings of a conversation about that in the Labour Party. And there are there are Labour Party politicians on the national stage who think like that. But it's very reluctant to give away power. The Labour Party gets power so infrequently, right? Once every 20 years, the Tories fall on their arse and the Labour Party gets a go, right? The idea that it would give... This is why it won't change the electoral system, our stupid electoral system. Same thing. The idea that you would give power away. No, no, are you kidding? I've been waiting 20 years for this. I want to hang on to it. That's a huge, huge problem. Yeah. It becomes staying in power, not necessarily mm. change. That yeah, I mean, it was one of the great. it was one of the great absences in Corbynism, is that Corbynism had very little to say about the big state. Not very much. The idea was that Jeremy Corbyn and his pals would, would run the show from the centre and because they were better, more moral people, right, that therefore everything would be okay. Well, a lot of Britain's problems are down to the fact that most people feel 2,000 light years from Westminster, right, whoever's in charge of it, and power needs to be given away. I think that's a bit of a simplistic portrayal of Corbyn is. <laughs> Can, can I can I ask one <laughs> real? Have, well, it didn't have, it, it didn't even have much to say about changing the electoral system, right? There were, there, there, there were, these absences were there, which is why some people felt uneasy about. One one selfish question, John. Um, we keep seeing these statistics about what's happening polling wise, what they want, what the concerns are, what's happening. You really, and again, I'm going to swear now. 
um, you don't give a fuck about Northern Ireland. <laughs> like, not well, That's terrifying. Like, that's terrifying. But did people in did people in a lot of the UK ever? No, but it's now it's now like it's not even included in in um in in polling you do now. There's no questions asked about it now. It's not even it's ignored even to the point whereby and and you know we're facing now Stormont isn't up and running. It's still not up and like um we we we're sitting with situations whereby we're talking about poverty in the UK. And, and waiting lists and Northern Ireland is worse than all all of it in terms of waiting lists for children on 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 hospital waiting lists. It's it's got uh, higher levels of deprivation. Derry has one of the highest levels of um of of uh, addiction issues and wait people waiting on you know these type of supports. And it just doesn't matter because it doesn't matter t- at all to to the rest of what is the UK currently. One of the most astonishing sort of strokes of collective amnesia I've ever seen in my life was the centrality to how stupid Brexit was of Northern Ireland, right? You could always make the argument, it was the best argument against Brexit, was just to say, don't fuck that up. Mm. You know, look what's happened there, please don't screw that up. And that the EU is so central to all that. Can, can you just leave it, please? And that people like Farage and Johnson and all the rest of them had such sort of horrible arrogance as to as to think, oh well, uh, you know, never mind that. We just won't worry about it. And then, let alone that, to then, only a matter of months later, promise politicians in Northern Ireland things that could never be delivered. And all of that. It was the most awful, awful thing. And a lot of us do feel that anxiety. Of course, we do. Um, but it, it's just an unfortunate aspect of the most dysfunctional relationship between. Uh, certainly England or maybe England, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland that, you know, I would certainly say you, and people I, in general don't start paying attention until things have taken the worst turn imaginable and then suddenly it becomes a matter of urgency but until then, right? And I don't think people understand it and that's a political failure to my mind. That, that does fall on politicians hmm. is it needs to be talked about far more and I, I, I find it terrifying. Interestingly, sort of returned to the zeitgeist there a little bit lately because the BBC made this documentary series called Once Upon a Time in yeah, Northern Ireland. Did yeah. you see that? Did, I did. I Have did. you watched I, that, Rory? No, I haven't watched that. I, wow. I, 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 I found it powerful, and yet I found it also, you know, maybe it's just because it was from the BBC. My my inner Irishman was saying, I'm not sure I've taken all of this, and you know, um, in good faith. So, But I did think there was so much in it, John, that would have, if I was a Englander, I'm going to say. Yeah. It's, it's definitely much more eye-opening than if you're uh, an Irishman who's kind of, you know, I I I would pay a lot more attention to the north uh, uh, all my life. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it remind the point is, I mean, I'm 53, right? So I remember a lot of that stuff. It's seared into my mind, right? Even though I, you know, I was living in England, but um, watching that series, which is not seen from the perspective of politicians, right? It's no. all it's all ordinary Joes, you mm. know, some of whom were involved in in the paramilitaries and all that, but it's very much ordinary people's voices, right? And uh, it just brought it all back to me. You know, I remember the H blocks and hunger strikes, and I remember uh, bombings in the UK. You know, I remember the Brighton bomb. I remember Anniskillen. You know, all of those yeah. things. You know, and when you watch it back, it suddenly all of it returns. And as much as anything, what it highlights is what an awful, colossal, immoral thing Brexit was in that sense. To even step two paces closer to bringing any of that back to Northern Ireland. What a thing to do, right? 
Yeah. And I think ultimately, viewed from the perspective of, of the UK and the island of Ireland, that's Brexit's biggest moral failing. And again, when we talk about, you know, the housing and generational issues, there's a younger generation in the north who are reshaping things and, and you know, is going to, when you look at hope, I think is reshaping things. Well, they're the most re- amazing. I agree with you. The, I've met some of those people. They're the most amazing. Yeah. And they're so inspiring. And they're just like, we don't want any of this, you know, and we want to see a progressive, you know, Northern Ireland that is. Yeah. Yeah. The way that they kick, and- they, they kick against that horrible reactionary moralistic aspect of unionism as well. It's just yeah. re- re- fascinating. Yeah. No, yeah. I think they're, I think they're amazing people. There are two sort of, there are two groups what? of people. I was going to finish by saying there are two groups of people uh, who, are in the midst of, of feeling too much despair about the state of things, that, I, that have given me real hope in the last sort of five or ten years. One is those younger people in Northern Ireland that you mentioned, and the other is the is the sort of best, most progressive elements of the campaign for Scottish independence. They're the two things that I've seen recently that sort of show you that some sort of progressive future is there. Right? What I would like is an English version of that, and I'm still waiting for it. Yeah, I think there is. Lots of those people in different aspects and, you know, and you've covered them so well in communities. Uh, For me, one of the most inspiring things in recent years was actually the students' climate strikes and the way that generation just took that issue and went out there. And many of them continue to to push it. Um, And I think there is there is a real sense, you know, we are in, you know, omni crisis and it is a different situation than we have been in. And the question then of, you know, anything can happen. And it's more important than ever that we're out there trying to show that there are progressive alternatives, ways of doing this than the uh, the authoritarian right, which is still there. And Yeah, yeah. But also, why, do, why does the authoritarian right in the UK, people like Lee Anderson and all that, why did they look so panicked? Why are they so desperate, right? Well, they, the answer is... They know that generationally, as much as anything else, history is probably against them, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, their yeah. politics finds no echo, really, among people yeah. under 40, right? Yeah. And in that sense, you know, as someone in the Labour Party once said, where there's death, there's hope. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a message. <laughs> John, absolutely wonderful, wonderful to have you back again. And uh, I hear you're doing all sorts of interesting and exciting things, Um People can check out your podcast on the Guardian um, website and on Spotify. I'm sure it's everywhere. Alan. Oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's it's somewhere. Which is, I would I would I, I would I would say I'm a big fan, but I'm not going to John. No, it's a bit hard. To <laughs> <laughs> no, he is. Don't mind. Him. I don't do. Mind he him. knows. It, I I I I'm the one who listens. Rory's the guy who doesn't. Like you know. I I, I but um. I actually I'm too busy reading kids' story books. I need them and all that stuff. Well, in the ta- in the time between Rory, if you can get access to iPlayer, watch iPlayer. Watch Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland. That's yeah, what I want. Absolutely do. Yes. Well, now Rory. There's a recommendation. You, 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 you don't have access to iPlayer because of uh, the, but but we can use a VPN if if no one's listening, right? Okay, we can, yeah. Um, just one thing I do want to plug for listeners: sound on, of BBC lawyers. Yeah, becoming yeah, curious. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I don't have iPlayer. No. The um the report yesterday. This is just for listeners' benefit. The report yesterday that you saw what happened on the border of Saudi Arabia to the Ethiopian. 
um, migrants, asylum seekers, and how they were massacred. Uh, the the person who wrote that report, Nadia Hardman, has messaged me now, and she's going to join me in the next few hours on the pod. So that'll be out with you guys as well. So um, um, listen, thanks for listening, John. Thanks, thanks so much again. It's great. Thank you for having me. That was real. It's always lovely to talk to you. So thank you. Yeah, really. Likewise, and I know our listeners really enjoy listening to the conversation to you. So listen, we keep in touch. We won't Please leave it so long the next time. No, no, I won't. I promise. But that was all me, not you. Uh, oh, I'll accept my share of the blame. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.